Indie Votes is a nonpartisan campaign of the Center of Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, and the Constitutional Studies minor at the University of Notre Dame that promotes voter education, registration, and mobilization. Indie Votes fosters conscientious civic engagement in political and civic life among students. Welcome back to our new podcast, Pizza Pod in Politics, a virtual initiative in place of our signature event, Pizza Pop in Politics, during the time of COVID-19. Our goal is to continue educating students post-election about different political issues from a nonpartisan lens with the hopes of fostering a more conscientious and informed student electorate. Today we'll be focusing on the independent and dependent variables of gerrymandering and how we can find a solution. Hi guys, I'm Rachel. I'm your co-chair of ND Votes. I'm a senior science pre-professional major with minors in constitutional studies and science, technology, and values. And today I'm joined by our campus engagement chair, Matt. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Matt. I am a junior here at Notre Dame, political science and economics major and campus engagement chair for ND Votes. Super excited to be here. At ND Votes, we advocate for everyone to use their voice and make a difference through their vote. But what if larger systemic issues render that vote less powerful? That is the threat of gerrymandering, and we should all be aware of how we can work to make the election process fair for all citizens. Gerrymandering is defined as the drawing of political boundaries to give your party a numeric advantage over an opposing party, beyond what you deserve based on vote share alone. These may sound like nefarious tactics that would be easy to spot, but in reality, politicians' attempts to solidify power may look neutral at first glance. One tactic often used is called packing, in which a minority group spread throughout an area is concentrated into one district, meaning the party they favor will often win one district by a large margin, while the party in power wins all the other districts by smaller margins. Alternatively, some redistrictors may attempt cracking, in which they dilute minority power by spreading out those voters across many districts. This means that the minority party can never gather over 50% of votes in any single district, though they may represent more than that in the aggregate total. States redraw their congressional and local representation districts after the U.S. Census every 10 years. In 33 states, state legislators who themselves mostly belong to one party and have a personal stake in how their districts look dominate this process. As we will learn today, with the help of a little math, we can detect when gerrymandering occurs and advocate for fair redistricting processes. On the forefront of this issue in Indiana is Professor Ranjan Rohatki of St. Mary's College. Professor Rohatki is an assistant professor in the Department of Mathematics and Computer Science at St. Mary's. He has taught courses in probability, statistics, computer programming, linear algebra, and most recently, the mathematics of voting. Professor Rohatki is also a member of the Indiana Citizens Redistricting Commission, a politically balanced group of nine Indiana citizens working together to demonstrate how the redistricting process in Indiana should be conducted. The ICRC is hosting a series of virtual public meetings through 2021 to take public testimony on what redistricting criteria should guide the map drawing process. The public hearing for our congressional district, Indiana 2nd, is tomorrow, March 30th, from 7 to 9 p.m. The direct link to register will be included in the publication of this episode and the promotional materials from ND Votes. The ICRC will ultimately publish a report to send members of the Indiana General Assembly in charge of redistricting. They will also host a map drawing competition with cash prizes. The ICRC will in turn with the All-In Challenge lobby the General Assembly to adopt these maps instead of those drawn by the incumbent politicians. Here to chat with us today about his work on the commission and his class on the mathematics of voting is Professor Rohatki. Welcome to Pizza Pot and Politics, Professor. Uh, thank you both for having me. That was a great introduction uh, on gerrymandering. Coming from a mathematical background, what inspired you to get into issues of voting and representation? So interestingly, 
like a lot of mathematicians, we kind of heard about this maybe five, six years ago. Moon Duchin is a professor at Tufts University, um, and she studies geometry, and she's applied her mathematical background to gerrymandering for the past five or six years, and it's gotten really popular in mathematical circles to study this. She actually helped Governor Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania redraw their lines when their districts were deemed unconstitutional. And so lots of people in the math arena have been getting into voting systems, gerrymandering, and just politics in general. So when you look at mathematical models to evaluate these different kinds of voting methods, uh, what type of voting appears to be the most fair? Matt, this is such a great question. I like Maine and several cities around the country, San Francisco, using instant runoff voting. So basically, when you go to vote on your ballot, you rank the candidates. And then whoever gets the fewest votes is eliminated. And that person's votes, whoever voted for that person first, they transfer to their second place candidate and so on and so forth until someone has 50% of the vote or more. I also like approval or score voting. So in score voting, you basically, instead of ranking the candidates, you just give each one a score, say on a scale from zero to five, and whoever has the highest score wins. But I actually think when it comes to voting methods, One of the bigger issues is that we have single-member districts. So for each district, say for uh, the House of Representatives in the U.S., there's just one person from that district that will win and then go into the House of Representatives. The need to get down to a single winner when there are just two parties doesn't really seem to make anyone happy. You're always going to alienate the people that voted for the other major party candidate. And so honestly, something like a mixed-member proportional representation system used in Germany, Bolivia, Lesotho, a handful of other countries around the world could work much better. And those systems use different voting methods, you know, that we've discussed, or even just use the one that we use, you know, first past the post, but they end up with a more proportional representation of what the voters want. Awesome. So along this mathematical vein, does the Electoral College, our system for, you know, electing presidents in in this country make mathematical sense? Ooh, uh, it depends on what the goal is. If we really want to live up to one person, one vote, then Absolutely not. Right. Each time I've taught the math of voting class, we do this exercise where I have students look up data on voter turnout. Um, They figure out how many electoral votes each state and D.C. gets. And then I basically have them figure out how many votes do you need to get to actually win the presidency? And we assume that there's only two two major party candidates. We kind of ignore third parties. We assume that none of the states split their electoral votes like a few of the states do. And we assume that voter turnout is kind of similar from the previous election. So when we did this in January this year, uh, using the numbers from November 2020, it turned out to be just about 30 million votes were needed to win the presidency if they were spread out over the right states in the right way, which is less than 10% of our population, which is just mind-boggling. Now, of course, that's not less than 10% of our voting population, but it's, it's crazy that a country of 330 million people uh, can pick a president with just 30 million votes. Students always scratch their heads at that one, and then, you know, Then when we get into voting systems and gerrymandering other things, they kind of realize how baked into the system some of this inequality or not fair representation is. One thing that's crazy about the Electoral College is we talk about in 2016, Clinton barely lost to Trump. Uh, Sure, she got three million more votes, but it was about 75,000 votes spread out over three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And so everyone calls that a very close election. On the other hand, The narrative about Biden's victory over Trump was, you know, a runaway victory with seven million more votes than Trump got. But honestly, Biden really won by about the same margin that Clinton lost by. 
if you look at the right states and give Trump about 80,000 more votes uh, in those states, Trump would have won the election, even getting almost 7 million fewer votes than Biden did. And so this this electoral college really, really skews what the people want and really weights areas differently. And this isn't even to say anything about how states are apportioned electoral college votes. Right. So the way it's done is each state has however many representatives they have, plus two senators. And that number is how many electoral votes you have. And then D.C. also gets three. Adding in those senators really makes things not proportional at all. And so the some of these smaller states have an outsized influence on the Electoral College compared to some of the biggest states. If you are trying to win the Electoral College, you know, it makes sense to to go after the states where there aren't that many electoral votes. You only need to convince, you know, a couple hundred thousand people in Wyoming to vote for you to get three electoral votes. But in California or Texas, you need to convince millions and millions of people to get those votes. So really, you're having to convince more people per electoral vote in the bigger states than in the more rural and less densely populated ones. Wow. 10 percent of the population to win the presidency. That number blows my mind. How did you guys go about calculating that? Sure. So I gave the students a website um, that had uh, by by state the number of voters um, in 2020 and the number who actually voted for president. So we used that for the number of voters. So they put that in one column of a spreadsheet. They put electoral votes in another column of a spreadsheet. And basically what the students did was they essentially calculated for each state how many people per electoral vote that state has. And you can do this based on population or you can population per electoral vote or you can do this based on number of voters per electoral vote. It's not too different. And then and this was the key thing that students realized you really want to sort that list by, you know, the fewest people per electoral votes and then all the way down to the greatest. The states that you want to capture if you want electoral votes but don't want to actually have to talk to people are the ones that have the fewest number of people per electoral vote. And so then once you're sorted like that, you just add up the electoral votes until you get to 270, and that's how you do it. And so many of these students, you know, they just they got the right number. Um, I mean, it takes some time to get everything in the spreadsheet and sort it all right and work through the logic, you know, but after an hour or so, they end up with the right number, but they're convinced that it's wrong. Like, how can 30 million people decide the president of the United States? It's, it's unbelievable. That's, uh, that's super interesting because obviously the Electoral College over our last two elections has become a, a very hot topic. So, yeah, thank you for that, those insights. That's super interesting. As we switch gears a little bit, I want to switch gears to gerrymandering. If we could just talk a little bit about the overview of it, uh, maybe tell us how often the district maps are redrawn. And, uh, yeah, just, just give us a little bit of an overview of, of the topic. Yeah, sure. I actually want to say one more thing about the Electoral College. If absolutely. That's okay. Absolutely. Um, maybe I'm definitely dating myself here a little bit, but in my entire lifetime, only one popular vote has been won by a Republican candidate for the president. But, you know, we've had in that time, you know, we've had Bush, we've had Trump. And so, yeah, it's just shocking how much the Electoral College kind of skews what the people want. But yeah, so you just asked about gerrymandering, right? So, Every 10 years, congressional districts and state house and state senate districts are redrawn. And we do it every 10 years because it's right after the census. So people move from state to state. People are born. People die. Uh, populations shift because of those reasons. And so we want to make sure that we have about the same number of people in each district. So that's why they're done every 10 years. And then, of course, there's also local districts, so county districts, city districts. And those are generally redrawn shortly after the census as well. Uh, but everyone has to wait till the census data comes in. 
Gotcha. How does the congressional, state house, and state senate districts differ? Uh, who they include, and just kind of a, a, a very basic understanding. Sure. Of those. Yeah. So the for a congressional district for the House of Representatives in D.C., there are 435 members of the House, and those 435 seats are apportioned to the 50 states. And that there's also a bunch of math there. The way we've apportioned those seats in our nation's history, I think, has changed five times. You know, what you want to do is just say, okay, 435 seats, 330-some million people, just divide the number of people by the number of seats. So you figure 700-some thousand people per seat. And that's fine until you get to a state that only has 500,000 people, but they need one seat. Or you get to a state where really they should get right between nine representatives and 10 representatives. Do you round down? Do you round up? If you round up everywhere, then you got more than 435. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of fascinating math that goes on over there. But yeah, so Indiana recently went from 10 congressional districts down to nine. Uh, so we lost a representative uh, a couple, I think, two, two times ago. And then... Indiana, so each, each of our districts has about 670,000 people-ish, approximately. And then the state House and state Senate districts, so we have 100 state House districts and 50 state Senate districts. And just kind of like just in D.C., uh, the state House members are up for re-election every two years, but the state senators, their terms are a little bit longer, so you don't the, the entire Senate doesn't flip every two years. I think the terms are four years long, so half of them change every two years. So we, we do a census every 10 years. To you, does that, does that sound about right? Has that been a good, a good benchmark? Is that something you think we should be doing more often, less often? Obviously, it's a big issue for, for the government to do this. But do you think that's about right every 10 years? Does, does that make sense? Oh, that's a great question. And I honestly have not even thought about that one very much. That seems, that seems reasonable to me. Generally, by the end of 10 years, very different things can be happening in a particular district than were happening when the lines were redrawn. So I imagine we don't want to go much longer than that. But as you said, Matt, like it's a big undertaking. So I doubt that we'd want to invest, you know, that much money more than every 10 years. Speaking of the undertaking, who's responsible for redrawing maps and does it vary state by state? Yeah, it does vary state by state. Um, And there are many different ways that states do it depending on which state you're in. So Indiana, it's a job of the state legislature, the state house and the state senate to draw the congressional, state house and state senate districts. In 33 states, the legislature is responsible, though the details can vary about that. There are eight states that have an independent commission at the congressional level. So just for that U.S. House of Representatives, uh, including Michigan, which formed one just a few years ago after a ballot initiative. Right. So there's a public like on the on the ballots in in Michigan. There was just a question um, it was a little bit more complicated than this, but it was basically, do you want to take redistricting and make a commission for it, um, or do you want to let the legislature keep doing it? And the public voted for, you know, taking it out of the hands of the legislature. Utah did that as well. Uh, I think the four states in the last five years have done that. A few states have hybrid systems involving, like, advisory commissions, so they're not, like, purely independent from the legislature. And then at least for congressional districts, seven states just don't have enough people so they only have the entire state is their district, so they don't even need to worry about this issue. But all in all, there are 26 states with some type of commission involved in at least some step of the process for at least some of the districts. So that's a lot of sums in there. But um, <laughs> there, the point is that more than half the states recognize that maybe letting all of the districts be decided every time by the legislature alone is a conflict of interest because the legislators then get to pick their own districts. Right. Do these 
uh, commissions tend to be nonpartisan or independent or also varies? Yeah, so um, though it varies a little bit as well. So in some of the in some of the states that there is more of like an advisory commission and the commission members are basically selected or chosen from a pool, but by the legislature. I think the way that we've set up our shadow commission here in Indiana is pretty interesting. There are three Republican members, three Democrat members, and then three people who are not affiliated with either major party. And so, you know, we like to say that we're not independent in the sense that we're apolitical. I don't think you'd want apolitical people being involved in this process. Uh, We're independent in the sense that we all we're not we're not the ones that are affected by the lines directly. We're not drawing our own lines. So we're much more independent than the legislature is. I think that's the idea behind these independent commissions. But yeah, the details about who picks the commission members and whether they can or can't be, you know, have run for office recently or how many there are or if the commission has some members of the legislature and some members of the public, those details kind of vary from state to state. I think that uh that distinction you make between independent and apolitical is super important because you know you still care, you still care, and I think that's what that's what matters. There was a uh, there was a an op-ed in the Indy Star published a few weeks ago, and the the author claimed that an independent commission is impossible. But I think I don't actually think that the author necessarily, or at least in in the writing, conveyed kind of the sense of independent that we mean when we say we're an independent commission. I think the author assumed that oh you know. No one's independent of the ideas. No one's comp- no one's perfectly nonpartisan when it comes to issues. And we're not trying to claim that we are. But, yeah, I think that's a common misconception for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think also with us as Indy Votes being a nonpartisan coalition, it's hard to convey that we're not apolitical, but in fact, we're just bringing all of the views to the table. Yeah, I think those are super important points. That, that's great. So now let's let's hone in a little bit on Indiana specifically. So if you could just talk about a little bit, what is the what is the state of gerrymandering in Indiana? So Indiana is an interesting case here. Briefly, so, you know, Maryland, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, until they redrew their lines, are kind of these clear examples of gerrymandered states. Indiana, it's not so cut and dry. So it kind of depends on how you're measuring. So when district lines are redrawn, you have to make sure the districts, you know, they're all in one piece. Like you could walk from where you are to any other part of the district. You have to make sure the population's should be about what they are supposed to be and equal. You have to make sure you don't violate the Voting Rights Act. That means you can't uh, gerrymander based on race. Um, But beyond that, there's very little kind of guidance about what a gerrymander is and what it isn't. And so I think a lot of people enter gerrymandering by looking at pictures of districts that just seem to have no rhyme or reason to how they're shaped the way they are. My favorite example is of this is in Pennsylvania before they redrew their congressional district lines. There was one that looked like goofy kicking Donald Duck in the southeast corner of the state. And it's definitely true that bad shapes or weird shapes can mean bad things. But if you're just measuring by how the shapes look, Indiana is not actually that bad. If you go look at a map of our congressional districts and our state house and state senate districts, for the most part, they are generally rectangular-ish. And we're better than a lot of other states when it comes to that. I think the Washington Post a few years ago said that Indiana and Nevada were some of the least gerrymandered on the congressional level. But that analysis was only looking at the shape or the compactness of the district. Another issue uh, when it comes to drawing fair lines, though, is competitive, right? And the reason this is an issue is because if you live in a district that's not competitive, 
whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if your district is reliably going to go Democratic or reliably going to go Republican, the only competitive election is the primary. And then people who tend to win are the more extreme voices. And so people who are kind of bipartisan in the middle want to work across the aisle, you get less and less representation of those kinds of folks. So you might want competitive districts. And if you favor districts that are competitive, well, then Indiana, uh, our, current, our current state house lines are the sixth worst in the country by, the measure, by this measure called the efficiency gap, which measures the competitiveness of elections. So that's not great. Sixth worst in the country. Another thing that you can see uh, that, that might tip you off to your lines being gerrymandered is how proportionally represented the people are in terms of their uh, in terms of their elected officials. So our state house and our state senate are between 75 and 80 percent Republican, whereas voters in the state over the last few years have generally voted between 55 and 60 percent Republican and then the low 40s for Democrats. So that's a big gap in terms of representation versus the vote. And that's also true on the congressional level. Seven out of nine of our congressional representatives are Republicans and two are Democrats. But that's 77 percent to 22 percent, which is quite different from, you know, a 58, 42 split that we actually see. It's a little bit more I would say nefarious in Indiana because you look at the map and you don't think that there's anything egregious going on, but then you look under the hood a little bit and you might say, oh yeah, maybe we're not as good as we could be. For this competitiveness measure, how is how do you fix that in a, in a gerrymander? So basically you draw the line so that you would expect there to be close races if you can. Now in Indiana, if we're just talking about congressional, we know that we have closer to 60% Republicans and 40% Democrats. So it would make sense that in D.C. we have five or six Republicans and three or four Democrats. So you can draw lines that make a lot of the districts competitive. And you might look at those shapes and say, hey, those shapes are much worse than what we have now. But when you have competitive elections, then people feel like their voices are heard because your representative can't just kind of ignore what the people want, because if they do that too much, the, a member of the opposing party is going to win next time. And so the point of competitiveness d- isn't necessarily to get proportional representation. It's to make the representatives actually listen to their constituents. All right. You heard it here first, folks. Shapes don't tell the whole story. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So there were five different redistricting bills introduced in the Indiana legislature in 2020, but all of them died in committee. Why do you think this is? And is there any hope for legislative reform of gerrymandering specifically in Indiana? I think there's been a loud and small group, but small group of people calling for redistricting over the years. But the number of interested citizens has grown quite a bit. I think 2010 was the kind of the first year where redistricting was done with extreme precision. And that is due to, well, okay, now we have, I mean, this isn't necessarily super new, but we have very precise uh, data, not just from the census about where people live, but political data, right? You can figure out exactly kind of which, you know, which streets, which blocks, which neighborhoods you want in your district if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat. And then we also have the capabilities to now kind of just carve up our, our, uh, our counties and our cities to favor one party or another. And this was done with remarkable precision by the Republicans generally nation, nationwide uh, after the 2010 census in 2011. Project Red Map, if you're interested, is kind of, is kind of the name for it. And the Republicans did a phenomenal job of winning a lot of 
state and uh, state and local elections this way and gerrymandering. But that's not to say that Democrats don't do it. I mean, Maryland is super gerrymandered in favor of Democrats. So it's it's not really about Republican or Democrat. It's about who has the power and do they want to keep it. And our country has basically shown that the answer to that question is yes, whoever has the power does want to keep it. So I think 2010, just the the precision with which it was done was more than anything that we had seen in the last 200 years since since Elbridge Gary did this back in, you know, 1812. But also, so because of this, so many more people understand where we are now. So when there was calls for redistricting in 1990 or before 2000, 2010, there, the, there was just a small group of people. But now so many more people know about it. And I think our voices can be much, much louder now than they were before. And just to drive home the point that this isn't a, a partisan issue, one of those bills that you mentioned uh, SB 105, which creates a redistricting commission, had four Republican authors and two Democrat authors. So that's, you know, in Indianapolis. And one of the one of the Republican authors was John Ruckelshaus, who's been advocating for redistricting reform for years and years. I think there's more hope now than there has been in years and decades past. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that things will change this year in Indiana. But I think, you know, Michigan recently changed. Utah recently changed. A couple other states recently changed. This is going to happen more and more around the country just because other states, not Indiana, but other states have the ability to put public referenda on the ballot. In Indiana, we can't do that. Any public referendum on the ballot has to go through the legislature. And so gerrymandering is not going to be changed that way in Indiana, but it can be changed that way in many other states. And at some point, it'll we'll, we'll have to change to just kind of stay with everyone else. It's great to hear that that bill was uh, bipartisan, because I know in these partisan times, it sometimes can feel like you know, nothing, nothing can be bipartisan. Yeah. So I, I hope that that Hope that that can change, and I think this is a good step to start. At the top, we talked a little bit about uh, your involvement with the Citizens Redistricting Commission. So if you could talk a little bit about how you got involved with the organization uh, and what you guys have been working on so far. Sure. So I applied in December after reading about it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where I read about it, but I know the All In For Democracy Coalition had some articles published in various local papers around the state. Uh, according to according to the coalition, they got a few hundred applications and they interviewed and they eventually picked the nine of us. And so, so far, what we've been doing is we've been holding these public hearings uh, in each of, well, they're now virtual, but one for each congressional district in the state. And we invite residents of, of those districts to come and share their views on redistricting, both at the, both for the U.S. House of Representatives, but also the state house and the state Senate. Um, and so we only have two of those left. Uh, the one for our district, uh, Rachel, as you said, uh, is on March 30th from 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, and that's what we've been doing so far, gathering testimony. We're going to take this public testimony and present it to the legislature. And, of course, at the end, once the, maps, once the mapping competition is open, which won't be until after September, because our census data was delayed this year due to COVID, we'll get that census data in September. Between now and September, we will be hosting some a workshop for how to use the redistricting software so you can, or for the, the mapping software so anyone can draw maps and then submit them to the ICRC. And then the nine of us will go through and kind of pick the best one, one for the, one for the U.S. House of Representatives, one for the State House, one for the State Senate. And we'll present those maps and the testimony to the legislature. So even if they ignore our maps, they'll hear what people have to say. That's the goal. In 2010, when they went through this process, it was kind of opaque. They didn't they weren't really transparent about what other data they used besides the census data or if they even hired out any part of the process in, in making these maps. So we really just want to model what a transparent process could look like. 
And it's been fascinating to hear what people have, around the state have been saying. So many people on both sides say the legislators don't listen to me because they are in such a safe district. And I think some numbers to help bear this out of the 125 seats up for grabs between the state house and the state Senate in 2020, only 12 of those races. So less than 10% were within 10 percentage points and 40 of the candidates ran unopposed. And so this is not a Republican or a Democrat thing. And kind of because of that, directly related, is Indiana ranked 42nd out of 50 states in voter turnout in 2020. Now, it went up in 2020 compared to 2016 like it did nationwide, but we're still 42nd out of 50. And, th and that's in part directly related to, the, to how gerrymandered our state is. But yeah, so some other things that we've been hearing is, you know, why is my county split into four state house districts? Why are Madison and Muncie in the same congressional district? One, you know, one on the Ohio River way south, and then one just north of just north and east of Indianapolis. Like, why does it make sense for those to be in the same district? And so many people say that the, they're not surprised that our voters turnout is so low because their representatives just don't hear them or just don't care enough to hold town halls to listen to their people. How has it been working with people from different political parties? You said your commission is three Democrats, three Republicans and three people that don't identify with either major party. Have you been able to, you know, conduct bipartisan work? And do you have a common goal? Yeah, it's been great so far. I mean, so far, we haven't actually been looking at any maps, right? We've just been getting getting testimony from the public. We have, yeah, we have those nine members. As you mentioned, we have an alternate, uh, an alternate Democrat, an alternate Republican, an alternate unaffiliated member as well. And, you know, I can, if I sat down and think about it, I could figure out exactly who falls in which party. But honestly, like off the top of my head, I don't associate, oh, this person, oh, I know they're a Republican or this person, I know they're a Democrat. That's kind of how unimportant party affiliation has been so far. I think it's pretty clear to me that all of us have like the best interests of Hoosiers at heart. And I'm 100% sure that when we get down to judging these maps at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the year here, no one's like secretly has been you know, scheming to make sure that the Republicans get another district or the Democrats get a few more districts. It's actually been, it's been really nice. It's been wonderful to work with people of all different political stripes. And, you know, the coalition did a really good job of choosing like a diverse group of Hoosiers. You know, the, our youngest member is a college student. Our oldest member is a retiree. So we have everywhere in the middle. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of representation from like the southern third of the state. Apparently, there just weren't a lot of applications from people down there. But other than that, I think they did a great job picking the people for the commission. And, it, and it's been a lot of work, but it's been really, really educational so far. I've learned a lot. That's super exciting to hear. We always encourage our Indie Votes members to engage in civic dialogue across the aisle and work on those skills of civil discourse because it's usually really rewarding. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So to kind of wrap up here, if, if students and citizens are, are, are interested in getting involved and helping with this commission, how can they do that? So the first thing is, if, ever, if anyone uh, isn't sure of what to do or where to go, reach out to ND Votes, to, to you too, reach out to uh, SMC Votes if you're affiliated with St. Mary's um, or all the offices at your schools that are doing great work. Reach out to me. Feel free to email me. But specifically for the commission, so attend the hearings. Ours, again, is March 30th from 7 to 9 p.m. And registration is at allinfordemocracy.org. Uh, when you're at the commission meetings, if you're there, speak or share testimony in the chat. If you can't make it, we still welcome your testimony. Um, there's an email address uh, that you can send in your testimony to. Call your legislators. One of the commission members repeatedly has said that his legislator isn't, is open to the idea of redistricting, but... He only gets calls from two people about it. 
And so he's not going to spend his political capital to get this bill, you know, further along than it is now if only two of his constituents care. And so when you call them, they actually listen. If instead of two, that state legislator heard from 200, I think his, his position might be quite different. So, yeah, call it, come to our hearings, give us your testimony, call your state legislators and call them often. When we have our map drawing competition at the end of the year, definitely participate. It's, you know, even if your map isn't chosen or you don't win a cash prize, it's actually really fascinating to see how this is done every 10 years, right? So the, da- the census data will be loaded onto the website in 2020 when it's uh, from 2020 when we have it. But right now, the 2010 census data is up there. So you can kind of go back and draw lines and see, you know, you can try to draw lines to favor Republicans. You can try to draw lines to favor Democrats. Uh, and you can see kind of how, how, much, how much variation there can be in the outcomes when you draw the lines in a different way. 538 has this great, has this great interactive tool where you can say, all right, you know, draw the lines in Indiana to favor Republicans. Nope, just kidding. Draw them to favor re- Democrats. Draw them to have competitive elections. They've done that, but now you can get involved in that process so you can see how it's done. And then when you go advocate, you can, you can advocate from a position of knowledge. You can understand how this is done. And you can you, you understand that process so you can kind of explain to others or tell your legislator this is this is how it should be done. This isn't how it should be done. So attend the hearings, call your legislators, participate in the map drawing competition. Those are the three big things that you could do to help us. Absolutely. And I think that that one story about the legislator only getting two calls, it's very indicative of what we try to talk about here at ND Votes that it, it might not seem like one call does a lot, but but it, it can. It can. So uh, we would encourage everybody that's interested to, to definitely do that. Andy Votes would like to thank the Center for Social Concerns, the Rooney Center for American Democracy, the Constitutional Studies Minor, and Andy Student Media for their support in production of this podcast. We would also like to thank our wonderful guest, Professor Rajan Rohatgi, for being here today. As always, Andy Votes reminds you to register to vote using the link in our website and our Instagram bio. Also, check out other voter education resources on our website and the resources we'll be posting with this episode today about the map drawing and district forum for gerrymandering. Your vote matters. Get political.